gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of what? Justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So you have this idea and sense that he is patient, waiting, and this ties in with his justice because Pastor Gene wants us to know that God is fair. And this is part of the essence of God. So when you hear people say, well, that's not fair, that's that's false. God is always fair. We just don't know all the knowable that God knows. He cannot be unfair. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Patience is not to be misunderstood as unfair. Sometimes that how that's how God is interpreted. Because it doesn't happen as quickly as, and as soon as we would like, he therefore is unfair. So that's his justice. Then you have love. God's love is perfect and unconditional. 1 John 4, verse 8. 1 and chapter 1, verse 16 as well. Let's take a look at what he says in 1 John 4, 8. I love 1 John. There's a lot of dense material and doctrine in 1 John. Hopefully we can cover that in the near future. But for now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. I think I've involved that in my notes as well. So after we look at these attributes here, the essence of God, we'll look at some of the things that I want to highlight. 4.8 says the following. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What does that mean? What do you think, Mike? Let me repeat it again for the recording. Listen carefully. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. His character? Very good. It's one of his attributes, right? But listen carefully and closely. He who know, he who does not love does not know God. So the person who does not love does not love God or does not know God. For God is love. So what is, what is John saying about the believer? I mean, this is profound. This is dense. Listen to this. He who does not love. You know people who do not love? People who hate other people. That's true. That's a good example. What about within the assembly? What about within the body of Christ? Right, same thing. So listen to what John is saying about those people who do not love other believers. I'm going to insert something here to clarify and to drive this home. A believer who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You guys get that? A believer who does not love. Go ahead, Ricky. Yeah. Well, in the text it says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So I'm going to insert, For the believer who does not love does not know God. Why? God is love. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right, right. Impersonal love versus personal, personal love. Right. So the impersonal love is a relaxed mental attitude towards the human race. Right. What about in context here? What do you th- since we know that he's talking to Okay, so you're you're discuss you're trying to focus on the distinctions between impersonal love versus personal love, right? So, what is the primary difference? Anybody here that you can recall that makes the difference sets the difference between impersonal love and personal love? What's the primary difference? When what you are, the virtue that's stored in the believer. That's right. So it's not dependent on the recipient. Right? It's not dependent on those on a horizontal level. You can only express love on a horizontal level if the vertical level is proper and in place. Right? But Rick is onto something because he said impersonal love it does not depend, you, your words were, it's not dependent on knowing them, correct? Well, that's true. Right? It's not dependent on knowing them. You can express impersonal love towards the people you do not know. And how is that displayed? How do we display impersonal love to the people we don't know? You're right. How do we... Relaxed mental attitude, extending grace to them, being careful, being cordial, right? You're not insisting in your way. You're not pushy. So you're extending grace. You're thinking of the other person even before yourself. And that can only be done if the virtue is stored up in who? You. Right? If you have enough virtue stored up because of your maturity, you can now interact with the people around you. It's not contingent upon how good they are, how beautiful, how handsome they are. It's contingent upon your virtue, right? So every whether it's personal or impersonal, it still depends on the believer, if you think about it. Your personal love towards the person that you are for, um, pointing the love towards, like if I'm going to love Rick, impersonally, personally, friendship-wise, it's still going to ultimately depend on me. Mm-hmm. Friendship versus unconditional. It is. Okay. Because you know. You, because you know them. There's a, a relationship between the two. Friendship or more. So it's relaxed mental attitude versus the virtue that you have. And you're absolutely right. But it still depends ultimately on the believer. Because if you're out of fellowship and you're not storing up the virtue over time because of spiritual growth and advance, you can't do either or. You can't impersonally love the unlovable because you don't have enough stored up in you. 
You don't have that agape stored up in you because this relationship is not where it's supposed to be. Rick or um, Mike? Okay. Okay, this one and hit TV. Hit display. No. This one? Remember the instance where the, the woman... Uh, At the well? Uh-uh, no. The one who was a harlot. All the, all the guys said, let's stone her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who was yeah, caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and stone her. Right. And uh, that would be, well, we're following the law, so that would be, that would be in personal love because we're, we're following God. Right. And Jesus, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. That's the person who has not Never seen seen Cast the first stone. That's right. And 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 right after he did that, the Pharisee said, "We got to kill this man. He's got to go." Yeah. Because that was a that was a hard right turn. That's from right. What, from what they wanted, what, what they were used to doing. That's right. There's no grace there. And Christ exhibited and displayed the grace while at the same time upholding the law. He said, go ahead. You're right. Whoever hasn't sinned, go ahead and cast the first stone. That's right. He cornered them. Rick? That's, that may be true, and it's I, I don't know. no. Well, you, you know, it's interesting how Theron brought that up, and I think that is a perfect example. Yeah, that was a perfect example where God the Son just took rain and turned it around, using the the law even. So let's see. Now let's go through this, and I'd like to talk about some doctrines that we rarely hear today. I want to add that to the essence of God. But for now, eternal life. God has always been and always will be eternal life. Now, what do we, how do we define eternal life? We talked about this recently. Remember that in John 17? No beginning and no end. But what else is eternal life? The words of Christ. 
Jesus defined eternal life as we know that it's never ending, right? We know unbelievers and believers have... um, That's true. But what is eternal life from the lips of Christ? How does Jesus define eternal life? Always with Him. But there's something else. Always with Him. We know life that never ends, but unbelievers will have that too. Right? Yeah, they have everlasting life, but they're going to be in torment. Yeah. But how does Jesus define eternal life? Huh? Location? No, it's not location. It's not based on location. Based on a relationship. That's a, um, that's a little clue. How does Jesus define eternal life? And this is huge, right? You want to talk to someone about eternal life. We know the gospel. We know we share the promise. We know that Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. But if someone says, uh, Rick, how do you define eternal life? What does Jesus say about it? We tend to go to John chapter 3. 316, for God so loved the world. But how does Jesus define eternal life himself? Not how to receive it, but how, what is it? What's eternal life? Did Jesus ever describe eternal life? We know what it takes to be saved, to receive it, but what is it? How do you define it? There's got to be more than just saying it never ends. No more pain, no more suffering. That's what we get in the future. But when does eternal life start? That's right, when you're saved, the moment you place your faith in Christ. When you believe in Christ... He who believes in me has, that's right. So you get it right then and there. But how do you define it? How does Jesus define eternal life? Okay, turn to John 17. We're going to listen to the Lord Jesus himself. John 17 defines it like this. Well, Jesus defines it like this. Very, very important. We've heard this numerous times and sometimes we become so familiar that we can forget. Um, Mike, could you read John 17, 3? Yes, or let's stop there. Let's see. I think Marty texted me too. Knowing God who has sent, he has sent. Very good. Thank you, Marty. Got your text there. Those online, if you want, you can, I think there's a way, just not sure yet how, we we had it at one time where we can hear the audio, right, Mike? We just, let me see. Okay, sorry folks, I thought we were, um, yeah, it would be nice to hear people online, we have several, Marty's on, Steve and Karen, Bill, 
Let's I think go to the participants. Yeah, right there. And then unmute. I think that's what we had left. I think you have to hit the three buttons. Oh. Doesn't say it there. Marty, could you say something? Or, or maybe if you guys can unmute your mic. Bill, can you unmute your mic? Let me just see if we can hear you. Okay, very good. All right, so we can hear. So those of you online, you're free to join us if you want. Just unmute your mic. So very good, Marty. Got an A on that one. John, let's, let's look closely. Mike, could you read it one last time and let's see what's there. What is there? Help me understand this. John, some. Right? So if you're going to help someone understand that, what would you say is eternal life based on the one verse? What did Jesus say there? No God. no God. Who else? Okay. So who are we supposed to know, know according to 17.3? God the Father? Who else? Anybody else according to Jesus? Very good. Is that you, Marty? Or Bill? Okay. So notice what it says closely, and this is eternal life. What is? That they may know you. Who's you here? Who's you pointing to? Very good. God the Father, the only true God, and who's this other person? And Jesus. So you must know the Father, and you must know Jesus, whom you have sent. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. So eternal life consists of knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. It's relational. It's pregnant with meaning. Eternal life consists not of eternal... It's not a durative uh, definition here. It's a relational. It's not durative in the sense that it's talking about time. It's talking about relations, relationships. Knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. According to who? Jesus Christ. And look at what he says here. He lifted his eyes, Jesus, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and that this is eternal life, that they may know you, referring to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, it's pregnant with a lot of meaning here. There's a lot of content here. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. So it's relational in this one spot. And it's, if you look at the rest of John, it's also loaded with, he who believes in me has everlasting life, present tense. So you have it the mo- at the moment of faith, the moment you believe. So let's move on and then we're going to look at some other attributes of God that I think will be perfect to tie in with the rest of this. 
So eternal life, we talked about that along with John 11.25, has always been and always be be there or will be. That's durative. Omniscience. It's a word that we're familiar with. God knows everything, past, present, and future. Psalms 139.1 to 4, John 1, 47 to 48, and omnipresence. God is everywhere at the same time. God is always there. He's everywhere. Psalms 139, 7 through 12 buttresses this to show us that God is everywhere. God is all-knowing. God is eternal life. God is love. God is justice. God is righteous. And God is sovereign. He rules over all. Now, having said that, I'd like to share some things that we don't hear much of these days. And I think you'll like it. So I'm going to add this on top of Pastor Gene's notes. Oh, a few more things here. We'll just go through it really quickly. Omnipotence. What is omnipotence? He's all-powerful. He has the power to do anything. Can he lift a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Can he make a rock so heavy? Mike, this is more of an apologetics question. Can God lift a, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Can God do all things? That's right. He can, uh, he can lift that too. But I look at it like this. I don't think he would because it would violate his nature. He would not ever do something that would contradict his essence. He would never do something that would counter who he is. So he, I don't think he would ever do something that would be greater than him. Right? So can he? Yeah, I, I've heard it all the time. I went in, in, um, when I was in college, I took all the uh, philosophy classes because I wanted to be challenged in my stand for God. I wanted to know if there were any chinks in the chain, if you will. I wanted to find out from philosophers if there is a strong argument against God and his existence. I remember doing a final paper in one of my classes uh, the Prove the existence of God. Or either the existence of God or the universe. I'd have to think about that. But basically, there were people saying, oh, so you're saying my grandmother didn't go to heaven because she didn't believe in your Jesus. And I said, no, honey, I didn't say that. The Bible said that. Ticked a lot of people off. And so we can talk about that next time. But there's a lot of things there, and I really had to study. And this is when, remember, do you guys remember Walter Martin, the original Bible answer man? I used to attend his Bible studies in Newport Mesa in, this is in California, when CRI, Christian Research Institute, was a big deal. Apologetics again. Walter Martin. Kingdom of the Cults was the big apologetics books back then. So I used to visit him and go to his Sunday schools and ask him all the questions. And Great guy. <clears throat> if you don't have the Kingdom of the Cults, that's a great book to have in your library, Kingdom of the Cults, Walter Martin, a great um, book for apologetics. So omnipotence, he's all powerful, he has the power to do anything, will he ever make a rock so big and heavy that he can't move it? I don't think so, because that would violate his nature. Immutable, that just means he never changes, that's Hebrews 13.5, and he would never, ever, ever change. Veracity, God is absolute truth. We find this in Isaiah 65, 16. And through his truth, we can be related to these ten attributes in this life 
for eternity or forever. John 3.16, John 3.18, John 14.6. What's John 14.6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is veracity. And then he lists a few things here. Stop and remember Jesus' love. And then every obstacle will become an opportunity for you to drive on in victory. He cites these three verses here. Let's let's read it. Uh, mercy and grace. grace. Yeah, in fact, I, I think I'm going to mention some of this in my in my notes here. I think it'll tie into what you're saying. Very good. We're on the same page, Mike. Very good. Great minds think alike. <laughs> That's good. So, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Very persuasive verse there, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 16.33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In who? In Christ. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So that is the essence of God. Let me see if I can. Advance now. That's the, just covered the essence of God. Now I'm going to add some, my personal notes here that I was able to track down. Some lesser known attributes of God's essence. So this is not a part of his book. These are just part of my notes. Um, from many years of uh, studies and just things from seminary. While many attributes of God are commonly discussed in seminary, there are some lesser-known attributes that provide further insights into his essence. Aseity. I don't know if you've heard that. Divine aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Divine aseity refers to God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. It means that God does not rely on anything outside of himself for his existence or his attributes, a seity. God is not dependent on any other being or entity. He's self-existent. Rather, he is the ultimate source of all existence, yours and mine, and the ground of his own being. He doesn't depend on anybody, anything. A seity implies that God is not limited by anything external to himself. He is independent and self-sustaining, existing necessarily and eternally. This attributes this attribute highlights God's infinite nature and his complete sovereignty over everything, over all creation. These supporting verses, Exodus three fourteen, Psalms ninety verse two, Acts seventeen, twenty four and twenty five. Because they are in red, that means let's go read this. Mike, can you tackle Exodus 3.14? In fact, you have your your computer there. Why don't you Exodus 3.14 and then Psalms 92 and Acts 17.24. So the rest of you can uh, toggle through your Bible. Exodus 3.14, second book of the Old Testament. Exodus 
And if you have that mic, go for it. Very good. Uh, he's not limited to anything at all. So he just self-exists. And what's his, what, what does he want uh, Moses to tell Pharaoh? I am sent you. You don't have to define it. Just tell him I am. That's all you have to say. I am. If he has a problem with that, too bad. I am. Okay, how about Psalms 90, verse 2? One book over to the left of Proverbs, verse 90. Psalms 90, verse 2. Psalms 90, verse 2. All right. If you have it, Mike. Before the mountains were brought forth, or formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He doesn't need anything to exist. He's always there. Self-existent. Divine aseity. Anybody online want to tackle Acts 17, 24, 25? Just unmute your mic and go for it. Acts 17, 24, and 25. If you want to take part, just unmute your mic, please, and speak to your mic so we can hear you here at church. Anybody? If not, I'll have someone else read. What do you think, Darren? He gives, one more time, Karen, the last part, he gives life, breath. Acts 17, 24, and 25. What was the tail end of that verse? Pretty powerful there. I, all right, let me tackle it. I think... Um, Acts 17, 24, and 25. Listen to this. God who made the world and everything in. In what? The world. He made everything in the world. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nothing material. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life gives to all breath and all things. He has made from one blood every nation. Oh, I'm going too far. What do you get in these two verses here? What's the focus on 24 and 25? 
What do you see? That's right. He's greater than heaven and earth. Yes, he is. He is the man. That's right. There's a distinction between those things made from man's hands and God. I mean, there's this supreme power that comes from God himself versus the creation trying to make something as if he can do something for God. Can't. So this is the put this out of the way. Divine, divine aseity. He's self-existent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need us to exist. Yes, he has us to love, but he doesn't need us. He's got the Holy Spirit, he's got Jesus Christ. Before we were existed, came into existence, he had the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were the triune God. They had each other. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. So, recognizing God's self-existence reminds us that He is not limited by anything external, emphasizing His infinite nature and supreme authority. In understanding His aseity, we find assurance in His unchanging and independent character. Think about that. Divine aseity. Next. Divine eminence. This refers to God's presence and activity within creation, within the world. It emphasizes God, it emphasizes that God is intimately involved in the world He has made. While God is transcendent and beyond the confines of creation, because He's God, He is also imminent, continuously sustaining and upholding all things. Molecules, cells, the galaxies. If it were not for God, we would be hit with planets, stars hitting us back and forth. We would be destroyed. So He coheres and holds all things. He upholds all things. He keeps us planted on two feet. Planted on both feet so that we don't go into the sky. I mean, we think of gravity. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from God. Why are we not shooting out in the space? Because of gravity. Who created gravity? We, we fail to think about things like that. That's part of his divine eminence. Divine eminence. Con- continuously sustaining and up- supporting and upholding all things. Acts 17, 27 and 28, Colossians 1, 17. Rick, do you, can you read Colossians 1, 17? Colossians 1, 17, those online. You can turn there as well, Colossians. Okay. It's in the New Testament this time. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Then Colossians, one book over to the right. There, Colossians 1.17. Yes, sir. Look at that. Listen to that. One more time. Divine eminence. Colossians 1.17. Acts 17.27 to 28. 
That's right. He holds all creation. That's right. That's why I said gravity, we think of gravity, and people like to describe that with science. Well, who who put gravity together? Listen to what the Bible says on this. um, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. What's that mean? He was in existence before anything else came into existence. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. In him all things consist. If it were not for him, we're nothing. In him, positional truth, in Christ all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He might be the first. Preeminent above all things, before all things. Why? Because everything consists in him. Were it not for God, there would be no such thing as divine eminence. There would be no such thing as God's presence, no such thing as his activity within creation or the world itself. So he's transcendent and beyond the confines of creation. This is divine eminence. Supporting verses, you you have it there in front of you, Acts 17, 27 to 28, Colossians 1, 17, Psalms 139, 7 through 10. So some thoughts on that. Divine eminence assures us of God's intimate involvement in our lives. So no matter what we're going through, he is intimately interested in each and every one of us. He is constantly involved. That's what the idea of eminence is all about, divine eminence. He's intimately involved in our lives, good, bad, or indifferent. While he transcends the universe, his eminence sustains and upholds all things, as we saw in Colossians 1.17. The only reason why we exist is because of him. He transcends the universe. His eminence sustains and upholds all things. This attribute, what attribute? Eminence. Encourages, encourages a sense of closeness to God, knowing He is present in every aspect of our existence and upholds all things, everything. That's profound if you think about it. Everything that's around us is because of Him. Good, bad, or indifferent. Someone will say, oh, evil, God made evil. No, He didn't. He didn't make evil. He made people. He made people in His image who chose to use their free will against his veracity and his truth. He said, don't do this, we did it. Don't touch that, we touch it. That's the only way we can appreciate his love for us. So divine eminence, that should push us and motivate us to appreciate him even more. So he upholds all things. Divine eminence. Next. Divine fecundity. Divine fecundity, it's a nice word there, huh? Fecundity refers to God's creative and generative nature. It highlights his ability to bring forth and create life. God's essence is abundant and life-giving as seen in the richness and diversity of creation. Beginning in Genesis. Supporting verses, Genesis 1.28. Psalms 104.30, Acts 17.25. Divine fecundity reveals God's creative and life-giving nature. 
It invites us to appreciate the richness and the diversity of life as expressions. Right there in fecundity, divine fecundity. Let's look at Genesis 1.28. This we won't have a hard time finding, right? It's in the very front. I'll read it to Genesis 1.28, right there in the red. Genesis 1.28 says the following. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. What's God saying here? In Genesis 1.28, he blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Who's he talking to? Adam and Esha, or Eve. Adam and Esha. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Procreate, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Take charge over it. Rule them. I think I might even have a note that I might have saved here on my phone to add to this. Thought I did, maybe not. All right, so Genesis 1.28, this divine fecundity, it's God's creative and generative nature. So it really highlights his highlights his ability to bring forth and create life. You see that in Genesis 1.28. You see the expression here just in the one verse. He blessed them, and out of the blessing, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over, notice, have dominion, take charge over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He wants them to rule over them. The birds, the fish, and every living thing, every moving thing. So that was the instructions. That was the work that they had cut out for them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No sin. That's right. <clears throat> so fecundity. Have you covered this, Mike? These some of these words? <coughs> yeah, these are some words that I sat there and said, oh my gosh, I, I remember this, I think. <laughs> I had to. So fecundity, divine fecundity, reveals God's creative and life-giving nature. It invites us to appreciate the richness and diversity of life as expression. So a couple more things here. 
Divine beauty. Divine beauty. These are things that we don't really talk about much, but listen to this. Divine beauty extends beyond the external aesthetics, aesthetics encompassing moral and spiritual qualities. It's recognizing God's beauty and inspires us to seek his moral excellence and find delight in the harmony, symmetry, and radiant glory of his nature. You'll find this in Psalms 27, 4, Isaiah 33, 17, and Revelation 4, 11. Let's look at Revelation. We won't read all of these here, but the last book in the Bible. Revelation 4.11. Notice what it says here. 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. What do you get from that? Romans 4.11. One more time. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were created, you created all things, and by your will, they exist and were created. What do you get from this? You created all things, and by your will, by your decision, your volition, they exist and were created. He calls it out and they were made. They were created. This is the God we serve, right? This is the God we love. Revelation. This is deep and dense. You are worthy, God, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Sometimes when I pray, even with the family, I always talk, well, at the Bible classes that I lead from time, and even here, I always talk about God receiving all the glory and honor that rightfully belongs to Him because it belongs to no one else. He rightfully deserves it all. Glory and honor belongs to Him. No one else. And I really love how John states it here, says it here in verse 11, 411. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. Who created all things? The Lord. You created all things and by your volition, your choice, your will, they exist and were created. Just because you willed it, it was created. It came into existence. From nothing comes. Think about that. From nothing Something comes. He created something out of nothing. He didn't need anything for it to come into existence. He called it out and said, come into existence, boom, by your will. Revelation 4.11, Psalms 27.4, Isaiah 33.17, all say the same thing in essence. So this is divine beauty referring to a part of the attribute of God. We've seen several thus far. This is divine beauty. And I have a few more. Divine transcendence. Divine transcendence. This emphasizes God's complete otherness 
and surpassing greatness beyond human understanding. It underscores his infinite majesty and ineffable holiness. While eminence highlights God's presence within creation, transcendence reminds us of his incomparable greatness. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, Psalms 99, 2 to 3, Job 11, 7 through 9, kind of talk about this divine transcendence. Let's look at Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. This is one of my favorite verses that really highlights how God stands over any of his creation. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. You've heard me use this before because it's worthy and worth sharing to remind us all of God and how he is compared to man. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's he saying here? Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. What's the sense that you get from this verse here? What do you think it's saying? Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Let me read it slowly. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Let's start there. What is he saying there? My thoughts are not not your thoughts. You can't out... What's that there? You You can't outthink me. Very good. What else can we get from that? My thoughts are not your thoughts. His thoughts transcend our thoughts, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a perfect way to to describe it. Your thoughts are not my... My thoughts are not your thoughts. We're not at the same level. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. You do something, I don't do it like that. Whatever you do, that's your doing. I don't do it like that. I have my own way of doing things. You want to fix it? Fix it. I remember Vernon McGee, one of the very, one of my uh, favorite sayings of Vernon McGee. He said something along the lines of, you may think you, you have an answer, but you don't have a universe. Think about that. You may think you can fix it, but you don't have a universe. In other words, look, you think you can take care of the problem yourself? You don't even have a universe. I do. So my way, your thoughts, we're not the same. We're at a totally different level. Right? So he goes on to say, my thoughts are not your ways, nor are your ways my ways. We're not on the same level. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways. So there's the involvement of the distance between heaven and earth. How vast is that? That's that's great, isn't it? 
the heavens and the earth, there's no comparison there. Not at all. The heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. So if the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I got this. You don't have a universe yet, Darren. Right? Not yet. You will have one later on, depending on what system of faith you're in. You may have your own heaven, too. Yeah. So divine transcendence emphasizes God's incomparable greatness beyond human comprehension. It calls us to awe and reverence, acknowledging the vastness of God's majesty. Understanding his transcendence invites humility and deepens our appreciation for his holiness. Think about that. Well, I guess that's the last one. So if you guys want this, let me know and I can always send this to you as well. Oh, Mike, you want a copy? Okay, I'll send it to you. Anybody online, if you want a copy, just let me know and I'll be sure to email you a copy. We've got several online. Good. Um, let's see. We're out of time now, but thank you for those online. Uh, we appreciate your input. And again, we just, uh, Sarah, I see you there as well. Glad you can make it. Uh, Steve and Karen, Bill, of course. Um, so again, I hope these divine attributes, the, the not so common ones, will add weight to what we covered from Pastor Gene's book on the essence of God. Because what we're doing is we're trying to establish not only who he is and what he is, which will work for a doctrinal rationale when we're in hardship and a trial, a tribulation, tough times, we can connect the dots and say, we're going to faith rest. I'm going to trust in God in spite of my hardship. I'm going to trust in Him. He's divine beauty. The list goes on and on and on. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. I know a lot of this is basic common sense for everybody here, but that's why I wanted to insert these other, like this here, the divine eminence and the less known attributes of God's essence. I'm hoping that this, like divine aseity, I hope these things will add some extra weight to the things that we were we studied together from this booklet. So, all right, uh, let's see. We're out of time. We're it's perfect time to close in prayer. So, thank you for those online, and let's close in a word of prayer and uh, let's give God all the glory and honor because He alone deserves it. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to assemble together to know you more through your word. A lot of these things, uh, as we're studying, are common knowledge for most of us, but at the same time, we know that uh, reviewing these things are helpful, and uh, we need these from time to time, and we're grateful that we can live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we thank you for this opportunity, and you alone are the true celebrity we worship you and we are grateful for who you are and the things that um, revolve around your essence. And we're reminded, Father, of how supreme you are and how much you truly love us. Every attribute that we looked at tonight is for us as believers in Christ.
These are the things that we can latch on to when we're going through difficulties and hardship. So we thank you, Father, and you alone are worthy of glory and honor because you're the only supreme sovereign being in this universe. We're grateful for what you've accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, for it were not for him, we would not have salvation, we would not be adopted into the family of God, and we would still be dead in our sin. But because we believed in your son, Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the royal family of God, thus allowing us to have access to you uh, via prayer, and we have the empowerment that comes through God the Holy Spirit, coupled with the word of God, which is alive and powerful. So we thank you, Father, and I ask now that you would keep everyone safe as we commute home. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's name. Amen.